So here we are. It's December. December the 3rd. We're in, what are we, Lesson 9, I believe. I think that's right. But it is December the 3rd, and we're moving forward in our study in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 today. And we start looking at John the Baptist. And I say start looking at John the Baptist because he will emerge again uh, in Matthew later on, and we will deal with him uh, not as extensively at that point, but we'll deal with him in context at that point. But it is necessary to uh, look forward uh, to some of those verses in Matthew, certainly in Luke and in Mark, just briefly to get the full picture about who this great man was. And we can say without a doubt that he was a great man. We can say that on the authority of Christ himself which should get our attention. And in doing that, that would take us right from chapter 3 here, just briefly to chapter 11, verse 11, where Christ says, Truly I say unto you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement coming from the Lord Jesus Himself. That and that alone should get our attention about This person. There's a lot said in the world today about what makes a person great, man or woman. And of course, it goes without saying, you have the world's standard for greatness, do we not? And you have what the Lord thinks uh, constitutes greatness in the heart and life of a man. Think of all the great men and women at this point, just from the Bible alone, just from Scripture. Think of all the great men and women and then consider the fact that Christ himself sets John the Baptist on top of that pile. That's where he is. And just to give you a few names, you're talking about Enoch, you're talking about Noah, Job, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Jeremiah, David, Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha. And your mind should just be filled as I speak those names with the great things that were done, the great example that was set by these folks. You know, Very little, if anything, I don't think there's anything negative in the Bible ever said about Daniel. Nothing. Uh, so just some amazing people. So what makes John the Baptist stand out? And what lessons do we learn about the man and certainly his message, which is what he's all about. And this is, what, this is the distinguishing factor. If we say, why is this true? Why was John so great? Well, it's not so much about the personal attributes or capabilities of John the human being. Not so much that. He was endowed with certain things, I'm sure, Uh, character-wise and commitment-wise, we know that. The Bible will tell us specifically here in a moment about what was done on John's behalf to prepare him. But it's because of his message. It's because of what he was selected to do. That's what made him great. And coming behind that, it had to do with his faithfulness. He was faithful to the very end, up until the point where it cost him his very life. He was faithful to that point. And he was courageous in that faithfulness. And by that I mean, he spoke the Word with authority. And God used him. God used him because he wasn't just a mere professor 
That's not what he was of his faith. He wasn't a person who just simply possessed the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he was full of the Spirit of God. And we'll look at that more specifically when we look at the fact that in John's case, as miraculous as it was, he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. An amazing, amazing thing that Scripture bears reference to. He's considered by many, and I'm sure you've heard this, he is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets. And at the same time, he's considered the first of the New Testament prophets. Just because of where he sits in history. Just because of of the time in, in which he was called to make his great proclamation. And that's what it's about. The nature of John's calling was to proclaim. That's what he was to do. To simply proclaim. Not his own ideas. Not his own experiences per se, but to proclaim the Word of God, to proclaim the fulfillment of what had been foretold about the coming Messiah, to prepare His way, to make sure that everything was ready in God's timing for the Lord Jesus Himself to begin His ministry. So that's what we see. So He comes with this great proclamation. And the proclamation itself was to a specific end. It was to prepare people. It was, you might say, to give everyone who would hear, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, as it would be said, to give people an opportunity when they heard that proclamation, that they would look within their heart, They would look and consider the times. They would consider the Scripture. They would consider the power of what was being said to them and that they would make ready. That they would prepare their hearts. And we'll look at how they were to do that because I'm happy to report this morning that the process is still the same. That when we hear the message of truth, When we hear it, we become responsible for it at that point. We find ourselves in a position where we have to make a decision based upon the truth that has been provided to us. And this is the same same thing that was happening with those who were there down on the Jordan River, River and in Judea well outside of Jerusalem, it speaks of encompassing or drawing people from a wide range, a wide area there where John was preaching, teaching, and baptizing. The people were coming. So we go back and we look primarily at Luke. Luke gives us a lot of information just as he does with the nativity. He gives us a lot of information about John the Baptist and his parents and so forth. And I'm not going to go very deep into that, but just to give a a full picture of who John is and what's going on, uh, we do know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were John's righteous parents. You know, these were people who who love God. You can, they're they're Old Testament believers. Uh, His his father, Zechariah, was a priest. He served uh, in one of the 
particular divisions. I believe it said there were 24 divisions of the priests and they would cast lots uh, to decide who was going to actually go in and burn the incense and so forth when that division was set to do its work in the temple. And his dad was a part of all that. That's what he was. They were up in years. Both of them were Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, um, you know, he would go in and, and, and do his thing. He was just faithful but one day he goes in and an angel of the Lord it says an angel of the Lord appeared to him and we know from Luke chapter 1 verse 19 that that angel was Gabriel okay that's what it says so Gabriel appears to him and notifies him if I can move kind of fast through this hey you you are going to have a child even though your wife Elizabeth is well past child bearing years it's going to be a miraculous thing but she's going to conceive Uh, from you not from the holy spirit and the child's going to be born he's going to be great and you're going to call him john we're going to go ahead and name him you're going to call him john that's what's going to happen (laughs) do i (laughs) so you're going to call him john which the hebrew equivalent is johanan which means jehovah or yahweh is gracious that's what his name means so he has this miraculous conception uh, in that God reached down just as he did with, with Sarah and, and, and caused her to uh, conceive. And they're excited about that. And the people who love Elizabeth and come around her are excited about that. The Bible says that they were rejoicing in that with them, that God had smiled upon them or they had found favor. And you understand how that worked in their culture in their community uh, elizabeth thought she had been you know done something wrong or whatever and, and it was a result of shame in her life or whatever we don't get the details the specifics but she speaks of that and and then points to the mercy and grace of god in taking away her shame if you will well, god had bigger plans and that's what he's doing but in luke 1 verse 15 as we continue kind of just to to, to build this information about John, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. What a marvelous, miraculous thing. John was chosen by God. John was set apart by God for greatness, but it was according to God's standard. It was all about His faithfulness. It was all about His commitment to His calling. That's what made it great. And of course, you can't you can't look at this without you know understanding that you know God reached down and made this happen in His own economy for His own purposes according to what God wanted to complete. And it reminds us a bit about Scripture that we see, say, for instance, about Jeremiah, where it speaks of Jeremiah, and he says, Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah 1, 4, and 5. And we forget, sometimes, many forget, that God can do what He wants to do. God has already prepared in eons past, in times Past what's going to transpire according to all uh, human history, according to what he wants to accomplish. And he can look ahead. 
He, he already has. And He's planned for certain things to happen. Paul understood this. In Galatians 1.15, he said, God, talking about himself and his own calling, he said, God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul recognizing that what had happened to him in his life was because God Almighty had reached down and made it happen. There's never any of this inkling about being good enough, about being talented enough, okay, about being gifted enough to be able to minister and to do something great. No, rather, it's about rising, responding to what God has provided in our life and what He's called to. Now, or called us to. And that, again, I say that's no different now than it was then. Because in every life in this room that's in Christ, He's done the same thing. We're not out there just flitting and floating around, okay? There are people that we are to contact. There are, there are people that we will intersect with. There are opportunities that will come our way. And the question will be, are we faithful in that? Do we see the big picture? And where we don't see the big picture clearly, are we committed to the Word of God? To do what He says? To be rightly motivated in what we do? To do all that we do for the honor and glory of God and then to see what He will do through our obedience? In a nutshell, this was John. And that's what he did. I had a a, a section here that I wanted to share with you. It said that the Lord's selection of John the Baptist is a profound illustration of God's sovereignty and salvation. We can't overlook that because he talks about it. Uh, It's about how he has written their names in the Lamb's book of life before, if you will, before the foundation of the world. This is God moving in doing what only He can do. And there were some that would perhaps look down and say, now wait a minute, you mean that John, while he was still in his mother's womb, had already been selected, if you will, or elected, (laughs) even to the point in this case, as miraculous as it was, was filled, filled, mind you, with the power, with the Spirit of the living God, even in his mother's womb. And the answer to that is yes. And that is the work of God. Samuel? King Saul, you're talking about? Yeah. I'd have to agree with you that that is what the Bible says. <laughs> yeah. It's a miraculous thing. And where I was going, there's people who might sit back and say, well, that's not fair. Okay, that's not fair. You know, well, it may not be from a human perspective, but it is God. <laughs> because that's what the Word bears witness to. That that's what... He did. A miraculous, miraculous thing. 
And I often say, and I've shared this before, you know, we have, for anyone who has a problem with that, uh, that God could do that or would do that. It's the same thing. You, you, you believe God created the, the world? <laughs> do you believe He did that? Do you, do you believe the resurrection? That for which you have to believe in order to be a Christian? You know, we go back and look at it, and I just try to put it alongside other miraculous things. Uh, but we tend to view those kinds of things from our, um, I guess you could say, democratic perspective because... We've grown up in the United States where democracy is about everything. I dare say, and in, in reading some of the commentators who, whose background is in England and in Europe, where they're accustomed to living under a sovereign, okay, a king, they don't, they don't deal with that as much. It doesn't strike against their sensibilities like it does us. But the big thing here is that God is God and God can do what He wants to do. And we see that throughout the Scripture. He challenges us from time to time. He challenged Job. He challenges us in Romans 9. And He says, look, this is what I'm going to do, okay? I can do what I want to do for my purposes. And I'm so glad that He did because John's purpose, John's message here was to prepare the people to receive their Messiah. That's what he was there to do. So he speaks and he makes reference to the Lord's imputed righteousness. And it's put on display. Isaiah puts it on display in Isaiah 61.10. He says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's all through the power of God and for His purposes. So, we see John, and looking back on him for what he was, he was a powerful and effective preacher. And the Scripture says as much in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, when it talks about the results of what he did, it says, uh, when the proclamation is being made about his birth, it says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it focuses upon him, but that's not to say that it's through his talents, it's through his ability, it's through his skill, it's through his um, usefulness as an obedient and faithful servant of God. And the result of that is, and I love the word that they use, the way it's interpreted, that people will be turned. Because that's what it's all about. That's what this morning is about. That's what the hour to, to come is about. It's not just about information. It's not just about some sort of religious duty to be here. It's not about that, ultimately, specifically. What it's about is about us turning What's another word for that? We're going to get to it here in a minute. Repenting. That should, be, that should become a dear word to us at some point as we mature in our Christian life. So how does this happen? Quite simply, how does this turning take place? How has God purposed to do it? Well, He says in Romans that He does it, as some would see, through the foolishness of preaching and teaching, and telling the truth about the Word of God, because the Word of God continues and always will have the power, 
when mixed with the Holy Spirit, when received by a prepared heart to change, to turn a person. And if we leave here this morning or later without having considered this, then we've missed the point. We've come for something else. I'm here this morning because I need to be turned in some area of my life. You can rest assured. David would pray, Lord, you know, I can't remember the exact verse and I'm going to have to paraphrase, but he said, he talked about the things that were unintentional in his life. The things that were going on that he wasn't even aware of, but he knew they were there. And he said, Lord, reveal those things to me. I want to be clean. There's nothing, is there? There's nothing like the experience of being clean before God. Now, we not just talking about our position. Thank God He's accomplished that. But in our relationship with Him, in our fellowship with Him, rather, to know that there's nothing, nothing on our heart that we need to bring before Him. Because we know that if we're harboring something, that it will hinder us at some point. We won't be able to hear clearly. When we were studying about the conscience, we focused upon Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, where he says, I've examined my heart. I've examined my conscience, but I'm not going to go just by that. I'm going to leave it with God. I may have missed something in my personal examination. Regardless of my efforts, regardless of my heartfelt desire, I know I'm still flesh and I'll leave it up to God to point those out to me. He is my judge. That should be the attitude that we have. And it takes a heart of humility to be able to do that, does it not? A heart of humility. John was a powerful preacher because he was faithful to the Word of God. Now, he began his ministry, and at the same time, Jesus began his ministry as well. John was a little bit ahead of him, having being put there to prepare the way. In fact, when Peter is preaching... Uh, for Cornelius and his family. I was what, chapter 10 or 11 in Acts. Uh, well, here's a verse from chapter 10, a couple of verses. He's saying, Peter's preaching, he says, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea. This is what Peter's referring to, starting from Galilee. And then he says it specifically, he says, after the baptism which John proclaimed. This was an important time. Peter looks back on that time, even as he's preaching here to Cornelius and his family. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And I give you that to say, Peter is looking back to that time. This is the time that we're talking about here. Where the ministry of John the Baptist and the beginning of Jesus' ministry intersect right here. This is by God's design. This is by God's plan. And John, he took no honor for any of this. This was not his way. He didn't see himself. There's no indication at all that he saw himself or anything that he was other than a faithful minister of God. In John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
That's how John saw himself and what he was called to do. There he's responding to the priests and the Levites about his ministry and so forth and his baptism. Again, in John, the Gospel of John 3.30, you're familiar with a simple statement that he makes when he's giving his own witness of who Christ is. He says what? He must increase, but I must decrease. Not at all. Right. Yeah. You're all you're all over it. Yeah. And that's how important is it? I mean, you know, we know even in the secular world about the amount of things that can be accomplished. <laughs> As one guy said, if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> because without humility, okay, without a full understanding of where our strength comes from. Um, we're going to get off base. And the lesson this morning will take us a little deeper into John from a human standpoint, how he was able to stay on target, I think. I think he's a a tremendous example to us, Uh, not just in his messages, we'll see, but in his life, in the way that he lived. And now he was an extremist, Because his message was extreme. The time was extreme. He was brought to this place in his life and in history for a particular purpose. Designed by God. Set in place way back. Scripture's clear on that. That's what has happened. But yet his example, because he was flesh like you and I I are, he took some steps. He took some steps to make sure that he stayed focused. And we can learn from that, and we'll have a chance to do that in just a moment. Well, it takes us up to chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the days, my word, now in the days of John the Baptist, let me finish, now in those days, rather, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, now this is what Matthew has for us. And I'm going to stop right there and not go to verse 2 yet because I want to look, you know, obviously at the word Baptist. And quite simply, it means just what you would think it would mean. If you look it up in its original language, it means one who baptizes. You know, baptism wasn't a foreign uh, thing to the Jewish mind. There were baptisms. They were quite different from what we see here uh, John doing. But nevertheless, this is what he was doing but even the word came there when it says he came preaching. The word, the word came is not just a word that means that he just appeared. That's not what it means. No, it's a, it's a particular Greek word, paragonomii, which means it's an official arrival. And that's what Matthew's talking about. Uh, it's the same kind of thing like, the, as he says, the appearance of the Magi at a particular time. It's an official arrival, one that was planned Many, 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 you know, centuries ago or way, way beyond that, at that particular time, John came on the scene and it says that he came on the scene preaching the Greek word caruso, to herald divine truth, to preach, to, uh, to proclaim, to publish, 
It's the same thing. It's the same word that's often used about what Jesus did, what the apostles did. This is what he came on the scene to do and how important it was. And what was his message? You can say, well, I'm sure he said a lot and he would perhaps make examples about what was going on culturally and socially and politically. Well, there's some evidence of that. He's, even though he lived out in the desert, he, he knew what was going on, but his message was simple. And it's the message of Jesus. It's the message of John. It's, it's the message of Peter and Paul. It's the message of the twelve that Jesus sent out later. And it's one simple word, and it's the word repent. This is his message. This is what it's about. His baptism, as it says, was a baptism of repentance. It was not a complex message, but it was a very profound message. He would look at those who came perhaps with a heart that was less than sincere, uh, some of the Jewish leaders, and he would refer to them as vipers. And say, who has warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come? He'd lay it out there. As he used to say, he'd jack up hell and put a stump under it. Okay, He wasn't afraid to speak the truth. He wasn't afraid to do that. And when you do that, even in this day and time, you're going to be met with opposition. You're going to be met with opposition. Yes, this plea for repentance is so imperative and it's so necessary and it seems to be the target of all those forces if you will that want to pull uh, pull people away from true Christianity or even from uh, coming to the point obviously of receiving Christ they do not want to repent they do not want to deal with their fallenness they, do, they don't want to deal with the ugliness because the Bible calls it what it is. And that's what we are to do. So it's the word repent. Metanoio. It's very clear. And it means to turn around. Okay, We talked about turning early. The, the prophecy was that John the Baptist would turn people, that his message would turn people. It's about changing direction. It's specifically about changing the mind, which will change the will, which will eventually change what? The heart. heart. Take it on down, practically. Action, Action, behavior. That's what will happen. And that's why we always say, when someone comes and claims an experience with God, a salvation experience, this is what's happened to me, my life has been changed, we rejoice in that. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. It's a new beginning. It's a new life. But let's see. Let's just see. Because He will make Himself known in our life through our, through our obedience. It specifically talks about moving from right to wrong, from sin to righteousness. It doesn't speak of perfection because we understand salvation. We know what God has accomplished for us positionally. We understand sanctification both positionally and progressive. We understand a later glorification because of what God has accomplished for us. But I would say to you this morning, the more we understand that, the more strength we have. The more more dear our relationship to Him is. Because we realize it's not because of us. 
Yet we can be victorious through our reliance upon Christ being filled with His Word. This was the startling message to the Jews there. Now, there's throngs of people down there at the river, throngs of them. Again, it says they came from the whole area there, way on out. Of course, the Jews want to know what's going on, especially if it's religious in nature. They're out there. But Paul, uh, Paul uh, John's talking about, look, we're talking about people repenting, turning, changing. Well, you're not talking to us. We're the people of God. Okay, we're the people of Abraham. Well, yes, I am talking to you. This was a heavy pill for them to swallow, if you will. Jesus said repent when he began his ministry. Because from that time, he began to go out in Matthew 4 and 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus' message. When he began preaching In Capernaum, Paul, of course, in Acts 17.30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, as Paul talks, God is uh, is now declaring to, to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repent. And this is in Acts 17, and he'd been preaching repentance long before that. Peter, when he's preaching at Pentecost, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can never get away from the truth of the power of God's Word upon our life. In doing its Word, and I'm talking about through the Holy Spirit, quite simply. He says He's come to convince us, to convict us or to convince us of what sin is of what righteousness truly is, and of a judgment. That there is an accountability. This is the basic message. This is the message that we cannot deviate from. This is the message that changes everything. You've heard me say before, nothing happens till you repent. And it doesn't. Not in the individual life. God wants us to hear His Word and to respond to it. In repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10 speaks of a different kind of repentance. We'll take just a moment to look at that because as we focus upon repentance, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save a real... We'll, we'll look at repentance deeper later on, repentance specifically. But just know right now, as I'm sure you do from 2 Corinthians 7.10, that there's a different kind of repentance. It's a worldly repentance. Paul says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but... The sorrow of the world produces what? Death. Death. Repentance is not just feeling bad about something. Repentance is not simply an emotional response over being found out or, or doing something that cost your friends or your family or whatever. Repentance is about realizing that we have sinned against God Almighty. All sin is against God. We can sin against our brother, can we not? The Bible teaches that. We can even sin against our own body. The Bible teaches that. But all sin is against God. David cried out, Lord, against Thee, Thee only, have I sinned and done this thing in Thy sight. David's not saying that he couldn't sin against his own body. He had, or that he couldn't sin against somebody else. He had. He'd had a man murdered. Okay, He'd taken his wife. He had done all of that. 
No, he's just saying ultimately and most importantly and first of all, my sin is against God Almighty. And that's the way we should look at it day in and day out. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, 32 times. I think I might have shared that in our very first lesson. 32 times Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. And really, it says he's the only gospel writer who uses it at all. The kingdom of heaven. The other three... Uh, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, they make reference to the kingdom of God. Okay, well, just so you'll know, there's no difference. It's the same thing. It's interchangeable. In fact, there's um, scriptural testimony to that from Matthew chapter 19 that we'll see later, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus uses both the terms in the same passage. There it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know the context there, the rich young ruler. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So there you have it. Jesus, in one talking about the same thing, he uses both terms, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. It's the same thing. The same thing. And we want to see it that way. Now, verses 31, uh, 3, 1, uh, 3, 2, and now 3, 3 from Matthew. He says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, and then he quotes from Isaiah 40, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is his message. In a nutshell, this is his commission. This is his command, and this is who he was. Now, there's a little bit of confusion about John, and people raise questions along this line. Well, was he really Elijah? Uh, you know, come back, yeah, reincarnated or whatever. No, and that was never the intent. <coughs> Excuse me, the intent. Malachi. It's what John fulfilled, the prophecy from Malachi chapter 4. And this is the way the Old Testament is closed out. In in, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Malachi says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So it has a fulfillment in the life of John. Uh, They know that this scripture also is talking about a time in the future. In fact, in in Jewish life and in Jewish culture, uh, I understand from the study that if if there's a, uh, a celebration of the Passover, an Orthodox celebration of the Passover, that at the table they leave a chair vacant for who? Elijah. Expecting him to return. It's the same uh, in an Orthodox ceremony, even at a circumcision. They leave a chair vacant for Elijah. Luke one seventeen brings some clarity to it. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the Holy Spirit and power of Elijah. Now that's what clears it up for us. 
He's not the actual Elijah. He's present in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And this is the way that the persona, if you will, the person of John is presented. And this is what his life bears testimony to, that he fulfilled that role. John himself would say that he was not the literal Elijah. In John chapter 1, verse 21, he says... Uh, but he was the Elijah uh, that Malachi was speaking of in the verses that I just read, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. But in 122, they said, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. I am not him. Was it necessary for John to, to know or to understand that even though I'm not the actual Elijah, that I am here in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what I'm doing? Whether or not he understood that I don't know. I know that's what he was, though, by God's design. He was true to the message. I would think that he would know that. But I don't see anything specific that says he did. Jesus, okay, go ahead. It has a double meaning, like many prophecies do. Okay, it has a double one. So Luke clarifies it for us in one seventeen. there. Well, consider Matthew eleven fourteen and 15. He says, where Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, and this is when the, they came and asking about John, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus asking him about, are you the one and so forth. Remember after they talked to John? They come and say, Jesus answered and said, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Those are the words of Jesus. So he's making reference to that particular fulfillment. And he adds in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And any time you see that, what's that talking about? Jesus said that a lot, did He not? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's talking about that person who's come with a sincere heart. They want to know. They're not looking for confirmation of what they already believe necessary, they're listening. They're listening specifically to the Word of God and they're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead them and to guide them, as we understand, into all truth. And there are those, not many, but there are those who did understand that. And I'll say just a word about John. I mean, he's languishing in prison. He's there. We know what's going to happen to him. And I used to think, well, you know, in his flesh he began to doubt, right? John the Baptist began to doubt. Um, but if you read and study on this, you know, yes, he struggled with things, I'm sure, uh, but he was a chosen vessel. He was specifically empowered. But in this case, I think it's more along the lines, as one commentator says, he's thinking, look, Jesus, he's not really doing what we thought, okay? In fact, he's down there in, in Galilee. He's not bringing judgment and all on the world. He's not doing that. This was John's message. He's healing people. Okay? And he's not even up here around Jerusalem. He's down there in Galilee doing all of this. And he asked the question through his disciples, John's disciples, as he sends them to Jesus, says, are you the one or are we to wait for another? So perhaps we see, you know, some of his flesh, some of his humanness coming out. 
I think it's a multifaceted question. But at any rate, it gives, it gives us Jesus' answer in Scripture, which I don't have here, but he says, go back and tell John what? What's he supposed to tell John? How the lame walk and, and how the, the blind see and how to the poor the gospel is preached, the things that speak of Messiah. And he encourages John's disciples and they take that message back to John. And I'm sure that's a message that he needed because it wouldn't be too long and God would bring him on home, as we say. John himself, talking about this persona, if you will, as a, as a prophet, uh, had a garment, it says in verse 4, of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. You say, well, okay, why is that important? Also, in Zechariah 13.4, listen to this. They're talking there <clears throat> about the attitude of prophets later on. It says, also it will become... Uh, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and get this, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. It was considered part of a prophet's normal dress and wardrobe or at least uh, notable prophets of that day that that's the way they dressed also in 1 Kings, when it's talking about it, it says he was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. Speaking of Elijah the prophet, well, that actual uh, word used there doesn't mean that he was a hairy man. It means that he had on a coat of hair. So that's what John was. And they were able, they, I don't know how important it was, but they were able to identify him even in his persona, even in the way he presented himself as a prophet of God, and it says later on, as you well know, the people believed that John was a prophet, right? Remember when they came to Jesus and tried to trick him? Right? And they said, Well, where do you get your authority from? Who is giving you the authority to preach? Talking about Jesus' ministry later on. And Jesus knew their heart. And he says, Well, let me ask you a question. He says, The baptism of John, was it of God or was it of men? You remember he puts the the, the uh, religious people there on their heels because it says plainly in Scripture they were hesitant to answer. They said because if they say it was of men, he said all these people will rise up against us because they believe John was a prophet. Even Herod believed he was a prophet. He said if we say that he was of God, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you do what the Lord's prophet told you to do? Repent. Why didn't you do that? So many words. And they said, well, we can't answer. And he said, well, I'm not going to answer you either. But the point there is that the people received John. They received his message. They understood in so many different ways, not just from the message, but from who he was, who he lived, the way he lived his life. He was a prophet of God. 1 Kings 1.18 is the verse I read that talks about this, this hair thing. It's just a good example of how you have to go a little deeper sometimes to understand that it's talking about a, a garment of hair, not a hairy person. So this leads us up to talking about John's separation, and I'm not going to get there. So uh, this is what we learned from his life. I'll leave you with this. We'll pick up with it next week and then we'll move on in the Scripture. But John's life was powerful because John willfully chose 
in obedience to God to separate himself, to separate himself from something and to separate himself unto something. And we'll begin there next week.